If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 565. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook. Forgotten Founders and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. McClanahanAcademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. And you get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. You also get coupons. So it's a great win-win. You can purchase one of my classes there or 20 of my classes there. And you keep this podcast free of charge. You also get great content when you purchase those classes. So you've already heard about that. But you can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on that support tab at the top of the page. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate, my autograph of one of my books. You can also purchase my books wherever books are sold online. My latest are The Jeffersonian Tradition and Southern Scribblings. Check those out. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, a great way to support the show is to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're listening to it. Share it around on social media. Do those things to help people think locally, act locally. And uh, as always, I appreciate all of your input. If you want me to talk about something, send me an email. Hey, can you can you address this topic? Can you bring? Can you can you somehow weave this into the podcast? I do appreciate those kind of listener responses. I do like listener generated episodes. So this week. We've got a really interesting week. In fact, it's uh, often called Lee Jackson Week in the South. And so for a long time, this week was always uh, dedicated to a discussion of the war. And if you said the war in the South, everyone knew what war you were talking about. It wasn't World War I or World War II. It was the war. And in so many ways, it is the watershed event in American history. The American War for Independence, of course, we wouldn't be here without that. But the war still determines so much about how we think of our collective past. It determines so much about how we think of the government, how we think of society. And so this is why the left has faced and or engaged in, I should say, a concerted effort over the last 80 years to ensure that the war is taught the way they want it to be taught. And I say 80 years because you could go back to about the end of World War II and you really start to see a transformative process in the United States with the historical profession. It didn't mean the old guard wasn't still there. But we start seeing revisionism, quite a lot of revisionism, in the period following World War II. And that really picked up steam in the last 60 years, since the 1960s. So this, where we are today is a byproduct of that. Now, I want to start this week. We're going to talk about the war this week. We're going to talk about Robert E. Lee. Of course, Wednesday is uh, an important day. It's Lee's birthday. But we're going to talk about Lee. So I'm going to do an article on Lee for Wednesday. But 
I want to focus on the war, or at least the memory of the war, and not just that, the implications of the war for modern American society in the other three days this week. The slogan of my podcast, Think Locally, Act Locally, is based on an original understanding of the Federal Republic. We had a Federal Republic, not a national government. We don't have a singular republic. And this is how the Constitution was sold to the states. That really is the heart of originalism. It's it, You can boil it down to the states have powers. They have control over most of our everyday concerns when it comes to the impact of government. The central authority was designed to handle two things, commerce and defense. That's it. And when I say commerce, it was to ensure there was a free trade zone between the states, to handle international trade, and then, of course, to defend the United States against any attacks. That was the whole point. This is exactly how it was sold to the states. The president was going to execute the laws, and that was it. It wasn't going to have a legislative, the executive branch wouldn't have a legislative hammer. The veto power was limited. So the central authority was sold on the basis that we have a limited central government. And the states had all other powers. Anything they didn't grant to the center, they reserved to themselves. So thinking locally and acting locally is just that. It is a process by which the states have control over most domestic concerns. Now, if we go back in time and we look at the disputes between the general government and the state governments and the powers of the general government, this is exactly what we're getting to. So I want to start with an article that was in the American Thinkers, written by William Sullivan. And the title is, What Issue Was Really at the Heart of the Civil War and Is It Relevant Today? So he says, most Americans today have a romanticized and extraordinarily narrow historical understanding of the conflict that we call the Civil War. In their imaginations, it goes something like this. With passions inflamed by a moral renaissance in the North regarding the institution of slavery in the South, the two sides decided to go to war over the issue. In the end, the evil South was righteously raised by the armies of the North, and thus slavery was ended, and the former slaves made American citizens, as Abraham Lincoln intended. If you think this is an unfair caricature of the extent of the average American's knowledge on the subject, I'd wager you haven't spoken to many people under 50 about the subject. Our young and middle-aged enjoy a collective memory of this fantastic tale of good and evil, and so many of our countrymen believe that it actually occurred in this way that presenting any alternative or more nuanced version of the story earns a million accusations of supporting white supremacy. Now let me stop here. First of all, this is exactly right. I mean, we have a, a third-grade understanding of the war. And I say a third-grade understanding because this is what you tell little kids. Well, I mean, you have to have the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys of the North, the bad guys of the South, and you have to have some righteous cause and some righteous winner. This is how these things are done. And if you don't do that, then people can't get it. And I see this all the time. In fact, it's gotten so bad... Uh, in in my uh, for my students that I mean they have such a a uh, ridiculous assessment of history not just American history but world history that they don't really want to know anything and I think that negative version of all this is a real problem in American society but he says anyone under fifty um, I would say it's more like under f maybe forty. 
because even those in their those people in their 40s were still on the tail end of getting some of the uh, much more nuanced understanding of the war. And it wasn't. I mean, you look at where these things started to change. Okay, the 1960s. If if you're are if you're in your 80s or your 70s or your 60s, you still have this a very nuanced version of the war. Once you get to your 50s, it changes a little bit. But even in the late 80s and even into the 90s, you still had uh, a a fairly good nuanced version of the war. It's really in the 2000s that all this, the last 20 years, it really changed. And I would say it really started changing after about 2000 or 2001. Um, and that's that's certainly the case. And so Sullivan says, but the truth matters and the telling of it matters, perhaps now more than ever, because at the rate that the leftists who indoctrinated generations to believe that fable are now using academia to rewrite history and are controlling modern avenues for free speech, opportunities to do so may be scarce in the future. This is also true, though the Internet is the great leveling agent. Now, big tech uh, can certainly silence and censor things. Uh, you know, there is the Abbeville Institute to tell the other story of of uh, the the Southern tradition and how important that is for American society. But even you know, big tech can censor those kind of things too. So uh, we we have we're we're waging an uphill battle. I've often said before, it's like trying to climb Mount Everest in flip flops and shorts, and you got to get to the top. It's hard. Right, but this is why the podcast matters. They can't take away all these things. They can't take away all the avenues for this stuff. And so there's alternate things out there for people to to be engaged in and use. And Sullivan says, but also and also the truth the true story is important because it's incredibly relevant today. Absolutely. The truth is most certainly not that Abraham Lincoln and the Union soldiers were so moved by the moral arguments against slavery that they were compelled to invade and destroy the South. Likewise, Robert Lee and Confederate soldiers didn't pick up their rifles and start shooting at their former countrymen because they thought they were coming to take away the slaves that fewer than 10% of Southerners owned. This is also true. We know even James McPherson, who is by no means a quote-unquote neo-Confederate, said, look, I mean, slavery wasn't the reason why men fought in the war. Not at all. But what he would say is, well, they didn't fight for slavery, but the South certainly seceded because of slavery. But then you have to ask the question, why slavery? And I've done this on this podcast, so I'm not going to rehash my arguments to a large extent, but why slavery? Well, it was about power. And I think that's what we have to understand here. Why did the North want to control slavery in the territories? They wanted to control slavery in the territories, not because they were morally opposed to it or there's a moral repugnancy to it. No, because they wanted the political power that adding states would, would give them in this Struggle over political political economy in the United States. Why did the South want to expand slavery? Not because they thought they could have vast cotton plantations in Arizona, but because they certainly believed that more slave states would add to their political power and so they could control the political economy of the United States. This is what it all came down to. And Calhoun pointed this out. He said, look, this is always about power. This is why he came up with the concurrent majority. Because when you have one side out of power, they're going to use the Constitution as a hammer to try to to get back in power. The other side is going to ignore it, and then vice versa. So Sullivan says, that's just silly. And in a sane world, anyone suggesting it would be ridiculed into irrelevance. Well, 
not necessarily you have the neo-abolitionists, you have you know, Stamp and you have James Oaks and you have these people that sit here and, and put this stuff out there all the time. The truth is, as Clifford Dowdy observes in his opening statements on the history of the Confederacy, 1832 to 1865, let me stop there. Clifford Dowdy, just by using Clifford Dowdy and then also Sullivan uses Robert Self Henry in this. Well, he's instantly going to be called a lost cause. You're just a lost causer. Using Clifford Dowdy and Robert Self-Henry, both, by the way, very good historians, popular historians, which is what makes their books fun, particularly Henry. Robert Self-Henry is the story of the Confederacy and the story of Reconstruction. Great stuff. The story of the Mexican War. Great, great, um, great books, right? And then Dowdy wrote some very good uh, popular histories of Lee and the South. So pick those up, too. But he said this, the Civil War was fought for 30 years before the mounting antagonisms exploded into a clash of arms. The period from nullification in 1832 until Fort Sumter in 1861 constituted a long period of Cold War, even by today's standards. Men who opposed one another in the opening phases of the conflict had gone to their rewards when the shooting began. And the generation in the South, which was to die, had not been born when South Carolina first defied the Union. The quarrel was passed on like a baton in a relay race from generation to generation until the men who settled in the bloodiest violence had little notion of what had started it. And so Sullivan says the initial salvo which began this Cold War did not actually occur in 1832, but in 1828. The federal government issued new tariffs, which were by design both harmful to the South and beneficial to Northern producers. A tariff of nearly 49% was issued on nearly all imported goods. The consequence was not only that northern industries were protected by artificially pricing European competitors out of the market, but agrarian southern economies were double-struck by being required to pay more for goods they had previously imported, and the reduction in European trade meant less money for Europeans to compete for southern cotton. And to make matters worse, there was fear in the south of retaliatory tariffs from Europe which would further harm commerce. Understandably, this came to be known in the South as the Tariff of Abominations, and it led to the 1832 nullification crisis. And let me stop there. There is a book um, written by a man named uh, Freeling, which says that, well, this is all really about slavery anyways. The tariff was all about slavery because the tariff hurt slave states and it hurt the slave economy because of agriculture. And if it wasn't for slavery, Southerners wouldn't have opposed the tariff. And of course, they all go back to Calhoun, who in 1816 proposed a tariff. This is true. John C. Calhoun, in his bonus bill, proposed a tariff, but that tariff was much lower than what you got here in 1828. And Calhoun, of course, rightly opposed this tariff. The question was, could the general government pass protective measures? Well, I mean, the North is saying, why not? We've had Jefferson... Uh, with the embargo. I mean, you all crushed New England commerce with the embargo. Now we're just flipping it on its head. Daniel Webster was completely opposed to the embargo in 1812, and he was a pro-tariff guy after that. So that's where we have uh, this issue. Now, South Carolina, he says, threatened to secede, but armed conflict was avoided and bitter resentment assured by the 1833 passage of both the force bill and the compromise tariff, which gave the federal government the right to military enforce, militarily enforce tariffs and lower the tariff rates, respectively. Now, what's interesting about that is South Carolina, of course, nullified the force bill. They went home, and the, the, when, the, when the compromise was passed, they, con, they uh, convened another convention, nullified the force bill, and then went home. So 
Nullification was still on the table. The force bill was null and void in the state of South Carolina, and they would have fought against it, physically fought against it. It was this question which was at the heart of this constitutional crisis, a bedrock question, writes Robert Self Henry in the story of the Confederacy, going to the very nature of government, the fundamental question of the relation of the states to the government they had created. Exactly right. So that that is the core, but not just that, it's about power. Is the center going to have the power? Are the constituent members going to have the power? Calhoun said, of course, uh, during the debate over, uh, you know, the, the uh, introduction of the slavery issue into Congress, he talked about this. He said, look, in the very infamous positive good speech, which, of course, I talk about in 26 speeches that changed America, where he says, look, I think Congress actually has the ability to abolish slavery because if they can pass an a unconstitutional tariff, why can't they pass legislation that would abolish slavery? I mean, what's the difference? So this is the issue. He, uh he continues, South Carolina was far from the first to threaten secession. In the 70 years between the founding and South Carolina's eventual secession, for example, New England seriously threatened secession twice, actually more than that, once on the grounds that the federal embargoes after the War of 1812 harmed commerce, and again after the annexation of Texas in 1845 and disagreement with American foreign policy in the war with Mexico. So actually they seriously threatened secession before that, several times before that. Even before the War of 1812, there was a real discussion about it at the 1800 election. There was a real discussion about it after the Louisiana Purchase. There was some discussion about it in 1794. So New England was the first section to really push secession, not the South. The central question regarding secession in both cases was the same as South Carolina's in 32 and 61. If the people of a state surmise that the federal government is pursuing a policy that compromises the liberty and prosperity of its citizens, does that state have to conform to what is perceived by the people of the state as an unconstitutional abuse of power or, more bluntly, intolerable tyranny? Well, this is the real question, isn't it? Lincoln, of course, said that we have government of the people, by the people, for the people, so that's why you got to support the central government. But isn't Self-determination, the real core of the American political tradition, isn't it the thing that we base American government on, popular sovereignty, so to speak? The people have the ability to control their, their own political fortunes? Well, if we have the people of a state, which are the states now, the term state, I've said this before, is a cognizant choice. It's not something that was just thrown around lightly. We didn't have co counties or provinces or shires of the central government. We had states, and states were like the state of Great Britain. This is very clear in the Declaration of Independence. If you want to take my secession class at McClanahan Academy, I get into this too. Dumbing down history to simple, easily digestible falsehoods like the Civil War was fought to free the slaves, for example, is the easiest and most effective way to make those falsehoods common knowledge. That's why the leftist propagandists and racial grievance hustlers in academia, the media, and the government do it. The truth about what led the country to the Civil War, however, is anything but simple or easily digestible. But I think Clifford Dowdy offers a fairly good summation. So again, he's going to quote Dowdy, and I'll read this. This is good. He said, The North and South had diverged into patterns of life which became increasingly antithetical. Antagonisms and rivalries grew in intensity. The industrial North did wish to buy cheap and sell dear at the expense of the South while northern money power needed the South in a colonial status for exploitation. Slavery did exist in the South, and there was a high moral tone in the issue of freedom held by a small minority. 
Extremists on both sides did inflame passions. There was the nationalistic sweep of the new industrial middle-class society represented by the North, an alliance with the expanding democratic West, and against these, the South stood as an anachronistic, arrogant, feudal culture in the path of manifest destiny. All of this defines the elements of duality within the corporate body of the nation. Yet put them all together with equal emphasis or any single emphasis, and the element of explosion is missing. That element was similar to the violence inherent in the split personality of the schizophrenic. There, the separate parts are locked in a struggle which must be resolved if the corporate body is to function. If this warring duality cannot be resolved, an explosion is inevitable. Now, one thing I think Dowdy is actually too simplistic on here, too, is that these antagonisms are not produced in this 32 to 61 period. These antagonisms existed in the 17th century, and I think this is where David Hackett Fisher does such a good job in exploring the cultural differences between the North and South, and, of course, the Quakers, the Borderlands, which loosely define the Celtics, uh, the Cavaliers, and the Puritans. All of those groups and how that functioned to create these cultural clashes that would lead to this war. Sullivan says, There should be little need to expound upon the parallels to today in that, but here goes. Red and blue states have, in fact, diverged into patterns of life that have become increasingly antithetical in recent years, and antagonisms and rivalries are growing in intensity. Blue states did fleece the taxpayers of red states last year by demanding a federal bailout for the decision to keep their states irrationally closed during the pandemic in order to keep their broken and internally unsustainable entitlement programs afloat. There is a high moral tone being expressed on abortion in red states, an institution that disregards the right to life among the unborn, just as the institution of slavery disregarded the right to liberty among slaves. Extremists on both sides are inflaming passions. Effete coastal liberals and elitists in the media and academia view middle-class red state denizens as anachronistic god-worshippers who prioritize their families and communities before the needs of the national collective and are thereby impediments on the Hagelin path of history toward the inevitable vision of progress. Red and blue states do, in many ways, seem like separate parts locked in a struggle that must be resolved if we are to function as a nation. Stop there. We don't need to function as a nation. We need to function as a federal republic. And all of these things that he's talking about could be solved by decentralization. This is why think locally, act locally matters. You want to have peace in the United States? You decentralize. You allow for the states to block unconstitutional federal laws. You do all you can to promote Think Locally, Act Locally, government from the bottom up, because that's how you have the most peace from the center. The states can deal with these things. The center cannot. You look at why Americans are angry, and I've had people comment recently on some of these older podcasts. You want to go back go back about five years ago, six years ago when I started this show, and I predicted much of what's happening right now. Americans are angry because we have too much power in the center. And if we can decentralize that power, we're going to see more peace and security and prosperity in the United States. Will this warring duality be resolved or will we explode when, for example, the federal government decides to mandate vaccination IDs be issued by all the states and several states refuse? Again, if the people of a state surmise that the federal government is pursuing a policy that compromises the liberty and prosperity of its citizens, does that state have to conform to what is perceived by the people of the state as an unconstitutional abuse of power, or can it express its autonomy and liberty without the prospect of being attacked by the federal government for having done so? That is the central question that was at the heart of the Civil War, 
and we are fools to not consider that it's the likeliest question that will be at the heart of the next one, or to understand that it's certainly the question at the heart of the semi-Cold War between right and left in America today. And so, again, we're getting down to a point where we've seen federalism at work, right? We've seen it at work because we have, uh, we have this COVID response. Some states did things differently than others. And we've seen how the blue states, people from the blue states, love to go to these red states like Florida, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez vacationing in Florida, doing all she wants to do there because she wants to be free. And we've seen the U-Haul revolution. And I, uh, there's a little article that I had, and maybe I'll do that next week, where it talks about the U-Haul revolution in America. We've seen it. People moving from the blue to the red states. We've seen this happening. And it's because people want out of this tyranny. So the issue is going to come down to decentralization. How much can we decentralize? How much can we get out of the way there? How much can we get the federal government reined in? And it's going to take a lot of work from the bottom up. But I thought this article was really good. Uh, so I wanted to cover it today. Hope you enjoyed it. And we got a great start to the week. We're going to talk more about this clash between North and South and decentralization and what the war means in this impending quote-unquote civil war. Are we going to have one? Is this going to be a real problem or not? We're going to talk more about that this week. But I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.